Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Athens, 350 B.C. For the angry man is aiming at what he can attain, and the belief that you will attain your aim is pleasant. Hence it has been well said about wrath, Sweeter it is by far than the honeycomb dripping with sweetness and spreads through the hearts of men. Excuse me, Aristotle? Uh, You're walking kind of fast. You know, I have trouble keeping up with you when you walk like that. Really? I did not notice I was walking fast. Anyway, spite is also attended by a certain pleasure because the thoughts dwell upon the act of vengeance, and the images then called up cause pleasure, like the images called up in dreams. Ow! See, not only were you walking fast, but you kind of steered me into that pricker bush. Aristotle... Are you mad at me about something? Not that I'm aware of, Wolfetes. Was it last week when they had the free stuffed grape leaf samples in the marketplace and I took the last one? No, you didn't take the last one. You ate two. And then there weren't any more. Two is okay. It's so not okay. This is covered by Plato, by Socrates. Everybody gets one when there's free samples. Oh, so now you're motivated by spite. Spite is good. You know what we'd have if there were no spite? Nothing. We'd just sit around like that idiot over there, the one who took the last chariot space on Monday. Oh, the one you accidentally spilled your hot lentils onto and then you had nothing to eat? It was worth it. Stupid bust-out jerk. Wow, you are one angry philosopher. Today on the show, we'll ask whether we've made any progress or whether we still need spite. And now his life is ruled by his hidden grudge against Laura Linney. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, the problem is what she did, you know, I can't even talk about it. I'm just still so angry. I didn't even send her, like, a baby present or something. She had a baby anyway. Um, We want to thank the liar player who came in, by the way. Booking a liar player for one of those sessions, very, very expensive. And I also have to say that in writing that intro, I did steal a little bit from Larry David, perhaps the king of spite in certain ways. Uh, He's, of course, the person who has very strong feelings about how many free samples you can eat if there are free samples available. All right, we're going to talk about spite today. Uh, We got very interested in this because of an article that we read, and we all thought, wow. This sounds like the kind of show that we would do. But then there's the sort of the question of what is spite? How is it different? Um, and, and what do you think people think about spite? So we spent, sent our very spiteful intern, Skylar Magnoli, out into the streets to ask them about spite. What is the worst thing you've ever done out of spite? I usually wouldn't want it done to me, so I don't do it. Honestly, no, I'm not a spiteful person. <laughs> probably talked about somebody because they probably did something to irritate me put salt in my sister's cereal instead of sugar. <laughs> she locked me out of the house and it began to rain. <laughs> That's a good one. We really hated this one teacher. And so then we messed up all the books on our bookshelf. So we were like taking them out of order because it's like her biggest pet peeve. So we were just trying to make her mad for like a whole week and we were doing everything that she hated. And it was actually a lot worse than you think. Probably yelled at people who were texting while they were driving. 
All right, so not all of those necessarily conform to any kind of academic or rigorous definition of spite, to the extent that there can even be one of those. So today we're going to look at spite uh, across a series of different models and disciplines. We're going to start with David Marcus, professor of psychology at Washington State uh, University, uh, who has uh, looked at psychological models and psychological sort of testing models for studying uh, spite and developing a spitefulness scale. Um, First of all, welcome to the show. Thanks. So let's begin with at least a definition for your purposes of spite. Spite overlaps with so many other things, with hatred and anger and vengefulness and schadenfreude and a whole bunch of other qualities. So um, how do you sort of find the little shaded area in the Venn diagram of those things that is spite? I think because some people do use spite like synonymously with vindictive or hostile or aggressive, I think what makes spite unique uh, is spiteful actions also involve a cost to the person who does them. It's not enough that you're hurting someone else, putting uh, salt in uh, in someone's cereal instead of sugar. It's doing it and also potentially opening yourself up to being hurt back or or, or doing... in the act, costing yourself something. Uh, so, yeah, if you knew you were going to get locked out of the house afterwards uh, and left in the rain, that would be a spiteful action then. So in our introduction, for example, when Aristotle uh, confesses that he deliberately spilled hot lentils onto someone yeah. that he was mad at and then had nothing to eat, that would be an act of spite. Absolutely. Um, so um, in attempting to study this, first of all, one, th- one of the first things you did, I-, I guess, was to try to develop this spitefulness scale so you mm-hmm. can measure it. Um, explain how you did that. Uh, essentially, uh, colleagues and I just sat down and tried to think of as many examples that seemed realistic and that you know, actually seemed to occur in people's lives uh, in which people would engage in, in spiteful actions. So uh, it, uh, the initial step of any kind of scale development is just tr- trying to generate items. And we did it in the form of very short uh, vignettes. You know. And again, some of them, most of them we aim for things that are pretty much everyday experiences, you know, pulling out of a parking lot uh, and seeing someone waiting for the spot. Uh, there's already been some research that sometimes people slow down when they see that. Uh, right. that, would, that would seem like a spiteful action, Wait, waiting... Uh, checking out at the grocery store, feeling like the person behind you is uh, impatient, so taking your time uh, paying. That, I mean, it's not a big cost to you, but you could have been out of the grocery store quicker, uh, things like that. So once you had the scale and once you began to measure people with the scale, what did you find? Uh, well, first uh, thing we did was we wanted to figure out which of the items on the scale really seemed to work. Uh, and so we started out with 31 items, and we got 17 that seemed to have very good discriminatory pro- uh, properties that they uh, tend to uh, cluster together and all seem to be tapping into this uh, notion of spitefulness. Uh, then the next thing we did is we looked at how that related to all those other kind of personality traits and characteristics that you mentioned at the beginning that should be overlap with spite but shouldn't be the exact same thing. So like aggressiveness, uh, Machiavellianism, narcissism, those those kinds of other negative personality or, or dark personality traits. And we found that it generally did associate with those. Which which isn't that surprising. In other words, we'd have to assume that, that if you are that kind of person, if you're narcissistic, if you're Machiavellian, probably you're going to include spite somewhere in, in your behaviors. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, if we didn't find that, it would have suggested that that our measure wasn't probably measuring what we thought it was. Uh, The other thing is we did see some group differences in it. Uh, So, you know, we found uh, that older people are less spiteful than younger people in our sample. Uh, It seems 
perhaps, if, assuming the measure actually is measuring what it claims to measure, that as people get older, maybe they mellow out a little bit and become less spiteful about stuff. Or we're just uh, too tired to act spitefully. It's just too, that, much, that, too much. That's possible, too, yeah. And, and it's also possible, again, we, we also made up a number of items because a big part of our sample was college students that are kind of student-like experiences, like, you know, uh, hope foregoing extra credit if your classmates that you don't like won't get it, or taking extra time on a test uh, just to make the professor sit there and wait longer. That, that, that one came from personal experience. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, so maybe some of them were less relevant to older folks, but I, I, I think it does kind of uh, fit with, I think, people's experience that, yes, get older, there's less energy to act spitefully, or, or maybe there is a tendency to be able to take perspective of others a little better and feel less spiteful. That, that's kind of an optimistic take. I don't know. Uh, we also found that uh, men were more spiteful than women on the scale. Uh, so, hmm, it's Interesting. Well, as we go along here, by the way, if you have a question or a comment or uh, something you want to tell us about or perhaps uh, tell David about the role that uh, spite plays in, in uh, social psychology and daily interactions, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I don't know how much of this has been measured, but one of my other questions is how okay people feel about their own spite. In other words, to what degree is, and I even wonder that about the age disparity, you know, whether a younger person wouldn't understand that there are social sanctions that might be brought against you if you exhibited and were, were pretty comfortable with your own spitefulness, maybe as we get older we learn to be a little bit more discreet about it. But I also just wonder in general, are, do people regard spitefulness as something they should be ashamed of? That's, that's a great question. And to be honest, we didn't look at that uh, yet, but, but it's a really interesting question. I mean, we did find that people who are more shame-prone are more spiteful, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you tend to feel, go around feeling a lot of shame, you tend to act more spitefully, as opposed to if you're guilt-prone, you're less spiteful. And, and, you know, one of the things that intrigues me about this, too, is if there are things that people feel ashamed enough about to repress or either actually repress, repress the behavior itself or at least not talk publicly about the behavior, it would – I mean, you know, we have this whole phenomenon – not that I watch much of it. But we have this whole phenomenon of reality TV where I'm given to understand one of the things that happens is that people on a lot of these reality TV shows really are very open about their spite. First of all, they're often in a game situation where they need certain motivations to fuel certain behaviors and to create certain kinds of alliances against one another. And, and they're, they're pretty open talking to the camera. I'm sure they're prompted heavily by producers and things like that. But in talking about how much they hate this or that person and how prepared they are to act in a negative way towards that person uh, and to, to, you know, to create certain scenarios. And I'm wondering if maybe that's sort of a, a form of pornography where people talk about spite in a way that they don't feel comfortable in their own lives. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'll admit I don't watch a lot of reality TV either, uh, but it does seem like it, pull, it, it certainly pulls for bad behavior on people's part. Uh, it seems a lot of that maybe again to kind of uh make uh a, maybe a trivial dis uh, distinction is it seems it's very vindictive and aggressive behavior uh what i mostly though it seems pretty instrumental that they are being encouraged by producers they're getting rewarded for d doing those behaviors so in that sense 
I don't know if it's spiteful because they're actually not incurring a harm. Uh, they're getting to be on the show for even longer and becoming more, getting more camera time, which apparently would be rewarding for them. But I'm also wondering if we, the watchers, are thinking, looking at that and going, oh, see, she gets to be spiteful and nothing bad happens to her. I wish that I could do that. Because I want to I come back to, the, to your model. I mean, one of the questions one has is, okay, so let's take something really simple. There's somebody waiting for your parking space, so you pull out extra slowly, just out of spite. Now, you don't have any reason to hate the uh, person who's there. You don't even know who that person is. But just for some reason, you know, and, and you are acting to your own disadvantage. First of all, it's going to take you longer to get out of the parking lot if you engage in this behavior. And, of course, there's also the possibility something considerably worse might happen yeah. uh, because people have road rage and parking lot rage and stuff like that. So when you look at that behavior, um, I, I assume one of the questions you're asking is, is it just sort of completely maladaptive behavior that has no purpose whatsoever and, in fact, is really kind of dis- disadvantageous? Or, or is there some reason, some rational reason, some way it makes sense? Uh, yeah, I think probably it, there's probably within spitefulness both those kinds of instrumental spiteful behaviors, times when being spiteful will ultimately get you something, versus just purely hostile and impulsive spiteful behaviors where it, there may not be a benefit to that. Uh, and those are, that's kind of the most interesting, when people are willing to, uh, to me at least, when people are willing to hurt themselves and there really doesn't seem to be any uh, end game, any long-term benefit to doing that, as opposed to a more kind of strategic spitefulness where uh, the person is being spiteful because in the long run they'll benefit. Uh, a lot of the spitefulness uh, research that's t- taken place has been done by economists who've looked at like the ultimatum game, uh, where one person gets to divide an amount of money and the other person then their only decision is whether both get to keep the money or they both lose out. So, you know, someone divides $10 and says, I'm going to keep nine, you get one. The other player may just spitefully say, no, neither of us are keeping any of this. Uh, If you're playing consistently against the same person, it makes sense to be spiteful. It's strategic, right? If someone offers you $1 and you say no, and then on the next turn, they're probably going to up their offer. Mm -hmm. But but other people have uh, have done studies where they use an ultimatum game where you're consistently playing against a different person or you believe you're playing against a different person. Uh, there, there's no benefit at all to rejecting the offer, right? Someone offers you a do- you're, you're either a dollar richer or you get nothing. It's not going to affect future play, and yet people still spitefully will reject an unfair offer. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's any, at least in that situation, gain to do it, but yet Certainly people are not inclined to let someone walk away with uh, $9 and they get one, even though it won't affect what happens in the future. So there it doesn't seem strategic. It seems purely just, this is wrong. I'm not going to put up with this. Uh, too bad we both lose. But you, <clears throat> excuse me, at a, at a more sociological level, at the level of sort of what's normative, it seems to me that one of, the, one of our assumptions that's mm-hmm. built into the culture is that spite's a bad idea, that if you do things out of spite, it will cloud your judgment. Now, one of my Rosetta Stones for understanding all of American life uh, are, the, are the Godfather movies. So, um, <laughs> so in the Godfather movies, we are sometimes told, or, or the characters are some, one of the lessons that exists within the Corleone family is don't let spite cloud your judgment, although there seems to be an awful lot of spite within, <laughs> within that world. But let's play a little clip here. Let's play the long clip uh, from The Godfather. You're going to search me when I first meet them, right? So I can't have a weapon on me then. But if Clemenza can figure a way to have a weapon planted there for me, then I'll kill them both. Hey, what are you going to do? 
Nice college boy, huh? Didn't want to get mixed up in the family business? Huh? Now you want to gun down a police captain? Why, because he slapped you in the face a little bit? Huh? What do you think, this is the army where you shoot him a mile away? You got to get him close like this, and bada-bing, you blow their brains all over your nice Ivy League suit. Come Sorry. here. Mwah! You're taking this very personal. Tom, this is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Where does it say that you can't kill a cop? Come on, Mikey. Tom, wait a minute. I'm talking about a cop that's mixed up in drugs. I'm talking about a, a, a dishonest cop, a crooked cop who got mixed up in the rackets and got what was coming to him. That's a terrific story. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. So, uh, David Marcus, uh, you know, the, the norm that's contained in that particular uh, conversation, you know, Michael has had a bad run in with this corrupt police captain. Now he's got a plan uh, that he says is strictly business. He's being accused by his brother and some of the other uh, made guys uh, of making it personal, that there is spite in his calculations, which mm-hmm. they think is a really bad idea. He's insisting that this is a completely business-oriented, dispassionate, rational decision that he's thought through. And I, I would argue that that bleeds out from the, from the Cosa Nostra in, into, into general life, that if you do something, you have to at least try to justify it by saying it wasn't out of spite. Uh, yeah, I mean, people often don't, I think, own uh, their own spite when they when they are acting spitefully. Uh, you, you, I think you're onto something in terms of that. Even though, I, I, again, there's some research, and I think your your guests later on are going to talk about this. That spite may actually serve as so, an important social function in in maintaining norms and uh, ha- having society work. Most people don't seem to want to uh, acknowledge that they've acted spitefully. A nice thing about doing sort of online questionnaire research is I'm hoping we get sort of people willing to acknowledge and uh, spiteful actions because uh, it is anonymous and there's no way it can come back to them. Uh, But, yeah, in everyday life you don't see people too often saying the reason I did this – nasty thing was purely out of spite it was they often will rationalize it and give some argument why or at the very least uh, they'll argue that uh, some social norm was violated something unfair happened and of course they had to respond that way we've got another clip for you uh, about this David Marcus this is a uh, Jerry Seinfeld uh, who's uh, bought a jacket and he's trying to return it uh, he's having a conversation with the salespeople about that Excuse me, I'd like to return this jacket certainly may I ask why first bite <laughs> That's right. I don't care for the salesman that sold it to me. I don't think you can return an item for spite. What do you mean? Well, if there was some problem with the garment, if it were unsatisfactory in some way, then we could do it for you. But I'm afraid spite doesn't fit any of our conditions for a refund. That's ridiculous. I want to return it. What's the difference what the reason is? Let me speak with the manager. Excuse me. Bob? What seems to be the problem? Well, I want to return this jacket, and she asked me why, and I said for spite, and now she won't take it back. Uh, that's true. We can't return an item based purely on spite. <laughs> well, so fine, then. Then I don't want it. That, that's why I'm returning it. Well, you already said spite, so... <laughs> I changed my mind. No? You said spite. Too late. So here we are at the level of the presentation of self in everyday life. And is, Jerry Seinfeld is talking, uh, David Marcus, more as if he's answering one of your questionnaires, right? In a questionnaire, he'd feel comfortable saying that, that I brought a jacket back one time because uh, I, you know, I just didn't like the people who sold it to me. But the, the, the comedy, the laughter in that bit is that we don't say these things. 
Yeah, exactly. I, that, that 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 was just a wonderful clip that I had no memory of from from the show. That that that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it it's so people don't give that reason for why they do things all that often, except for maybe the people that they know very very well. But in everyday life, you're right. We we don't say that. Now, all right. Well, David Marcus, it's been fantastic to talk to you, and we we look forward to even more research. Um, you're going to say stay with Spite, I assume. I mean, you're you're uh, you're raking across the surface here. I, I assume you're going to dig even deeper. Yes, uh, trying to. Next step is to look at how uh, whether people's responses on a spitefulness scale predict how they'll behave in an ultimatum game. Will they be more spiteful in rejecting offers than folks who score as being less spiteful? Uh, that's one of the, th- the next things we're going to look at. Uh, but yeah, I've been interested in sort of these dark personality traits of spite and psychopathy and narcissism. And so, yeah, I'm going to stay in that area. <laughs> you sound like that. You, well, you've been the ideal guest today. I'm sure you'll be an ideal guest for us on future shows. We're interested in all of those things, too. So we'll, we promise to follow up with you. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. And as uh, David Marcus said, uh, our next guest is going to talk about situations in which spite may actually be somewhat adaptive. All right, we're back. We're talking about spite. You know, in the world of sports, uh, this has come up even in the last 24, 48 hours. Uh, University of Connecticut will be playing uh, Notre Dame tonight. Uh, the coach of Notre Dame has kind of fractured the normal social compact that papers over the spite uh, aspect. I mean, usually coaches have to sort of pretend that they're, you know, they just want a well-fought game. And Muffin McGraw is openly talking about the fact that uh, UConn and Notre Dame hate each other. Um, and you know, that may be an example not only of hatred, but also of spite, because there are certain disadvantages that you incur once you admit that you, you bear true animosity against your opponent. So speaking of sports, I want to mention that tomorrow night, uh, Wednesday night at 7 p.m., we'll be at Watkinson School for a program about sports. We call it uh, How Do We Get Back to the Field of Dreams, uh, talking a little bit about some of the innocence that's leached out of sports, both at the level of youth sports that our kids play all the way up to the very tippy-top uh, highest pinnacle of sports. Uh, we have a great panel for you. You're welcome to join us. You should contact Watkinson School right now, watkinson.org, uh, for tickets. Uh, we'd love to see you there tomorrow night. Uh, we're going to have a pretty good crowd and a great panel and a great evening. So join us, 7 p.m., Watkinson School. All right, we're going to move on here. We're going to talk uh, about uh, spite as an adaptive behavior or whether it can be an adaptive behavior. And to guide us through that, we have Rory Smead, an assistant professor of philosophy of biology at Northeastern University. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Colin. So, uh, you know, within your field, you know, this gets talked about sometimes, sometimes preceded by the word Hamiltonian, right? Hamiltonian altruism and Hamiltonian spite. So examples of this might be um, well, the only one that I know because I'm, it's the way I see the world is the uh, elephants sometimes defecate in watering holes that are, are, are going to be used. So they, they can't be used by rival packs of elephants. But there are examples of this in the animal world, right? Things yeah. that look like spite. Yeah, there are, there's actually um, numerous examples. Um, and so there's a thing to be biological spite, what I'm going to be talking about and, and what 
Professor Marcus was talking about was psychological spites. Psycholo psychological spite is usually defined in terms of motives or intentions, doing something with the, you know, with the motive or intention to harm someone, irrespective of gain, even at a cost. But biological spite is in time is defined not in those psychological terms, but in terms of um, the fitness or reproductive success um, that comes about from from the behavior. So spite, in the biological sense or the Hamiltonian sense, is behavior that inflicts a harm, a harm to another at a cost to the actor in sort of terms of reproductive success. So give us, I guess, the yellow room. Oh, sorry. The, yeah. yeah, the example. <laughs> um, so there, there, there are several examples that 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 we might um, that we might bring up to illustrate this. Um, one of the ones um, that I like is actually from Laurent Keller and Kenneth Ross um, in the 1998 paper in Nature about imported red fire ants mm -hmm. um, that actively um, sort of seek out other ants that are slightly genetically different based on their scent and then kill them, even though they're part of the same, um, same, same ant hive. Um, and there are other examples from, from spite in nature as, as well. The yellow-rumped cacique um, is a bird that will, the adolescent males will spend um, a good portion of their, of their free time harassing nesting females, oftentimes resulting in fledgling deaths with no apparent gains um, and the risk of harm by retaliating females. Well, so that raises all kinds of huge question marks right away, right? I mean, behaviors that are are part of a, a DNA code are supposed to be adaptive. They're supposed to have some kind of purpose. So you look at that and you wonder, well, what's the purpose? Is it possible to extrude a purpose from that kind of behavior? Well, it, so it's it's interesting. Um, this is precisely the reason that it's particularly fascinating to evolutionary theorists and biologists. Um, sort of by definition, spite is something that pays a cost. So why should we ever expect it? Um, to arise. The, it turns out that um, we have to think carefully about what we mean by costs and benefits here. Mm -hmm. One of the things that spite can do for us, even though by definition we have fewer children as a result of it, one of the things it can do is allow us to gain a relative advantage. It's a bit, of li a bit like um, taking a pay cut so that your colleagues have to take a bigger pay cut. In the biological sense, this would come out as, sure, I have fewer kids now, but you have even fewer than I do. Um, so, th so that's one possible um, be reason. As we get to sort of more advanced organisms, um, even primates and humans and stuff like that, do we see, is there a way in which spite introduces some kind of norm, some kind of um, enforceable behavior, some kind of understanding, well, if you do this, then this other thing will happen? Yeah, so the, the interesting connection here is between spite and what I think most people might call punishment, right? Typically, if somebody is supposed to be acting in some way and they don't, they suffer some, some, some sort of consequences for that. And we, um, we typically think of it as, as punishment. And punishment is usually sort of characterized in a relatively, um, what, what me, and, me and my co-author, Professor Forber, um, refer to as a pro-social behavior. Um, but we, we like to think about the sort of potential dark side of punishment, that it might have closer links to spite rather than sort of making sure that we're all good to one another. Punishment may have been the outcome of something that something more like spite. So, I mean, just to sort of be clear about that, in other words, what you're saying is um – you know, I mean, evolution looks at behaviors that can be either kind of random or at least not necessarily ascribable to, to any kind of beneficial purpose, but which kind of by accident do work that way. So that uh, if, in fact, you know, some of our, our more limbic system responses to stuff make us engage in spiteful behavior when we're, when we're angry and we're almost irrationally angry, um, those could still get encoded 
as, uh, as uh, on a kind of evolutionary basis because they turn out to have a benefit that isn't even necessarily intended by the, the original actor. Right, and that may may have not been why it was selected for um, it, to put it in those in, in sort of evolutionary terms. So the so our basic story is or the sort of the basic picture that that um, we think is we think is is a possibility. We we don't know um, how much it it corresponds to what actually happened, but as far as an evolutionary possibility goes. Um, we think that there are certain conditions that favor spite, sort of straight-up spite, in, 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 um, in the ways that we've been talking about, just paying a cost to inflict a harm. And those conditions are where the behaviors are sort of disproportionately re- directed at those that are not like you or those that aren't doing the spite. Mm-hmm. Um, and under those conditions, you can expect spite to gain that relative advantage that it needs to evolve. What that means is everybody does worse off because there's so much spite going on. But um, if you didn't spite, then you would do even worse, right? That's the idea. Um, g- 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 and, g- give me an example to kind of help. I'm having a little trouble wrapping my mind around that one. Um, so, <laughs> so with with something like um, so the, with something like the imported red fire ants, one mm-hmm. of the things that's going on is they detect pheromone scents. Um, um, which are a genetic marker for what they're like. Um, and they disproportionately reject their harm, harming, attacking behavior at those that are different than them. Mm-hmm. And in those kind of conditions are exactly the kind of conditions that the sort of spite will give you a relative advantage by performing that. Although you have to pay a cost, the others that aren't like you are paying a bigger cost. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to make you make this extrapolation, but it is kind of interesting to think about um, one of the things I was thinking about today is religious and philosophical traditions that either do or don't have any component of spite. Uh, I mean, most religious systems do incorporate some notion of punishment for, for wrongdoing. Um, and, you know, even Jesus has his moments when he's railing against uh, Pharisees and hypocrites and lawyers and scribes and telling them all the kind of bad things that are happening to them. And he curses a fig tree. Uh, so even he has uh, moments like that. But you sort of – I find myself wondering today whether um, – you know, you, you think of Tibetan Buddhism, which, based on my study of it, isn't entirely, or my experience of it anyway, isn't entirely devoid of spite, but doesn't have very much, you know. And then you, you have these the, the kind of predatory behavior of the Chinese government. Um, you know, you can sort of look at that, and as I say, I don't want to have you say something that's academically unsound, but you do kind of wonder whether that's a real disadvantage, that they don't have the kind of spiteful component, that they don't uh, lay that out very much as part of their, their social system. Yeah, so there are some there are some sort of potential um, benefits that can come from having spite um, having spite present. So I'll, I'll talk about the ultimatum game for a second because sure. Professor Marcus brought it up, and that's actually one of the things that we studied um, in our in our recent paper that came out um, just just a little while ago um, in the proceedings of the Royal Society. Um, so we we presented an evolutionary model of the ultimatum game, which in a sense is just a mathematical description where we where we have um, little in a sense, fictional reproducers playing the ultimatum game. And they're playing not for money, but they're playing for reproductive success. Um, and um, you might imagine, so the ultimatum game, just to, just to restate it, um, is that um, one player, there's two players. One player gets to propose a split, say 50-50 or 90-10, and the other player can either accept or reject it. And if they reject it, they get nothing. Um, so the, the sort of economically rational strategy is the one that uh, so makes as large an offer as they can, assuming the other player is going to accept it, and they accept any offer that comes their way. Um, a spiteful strategy would be one that does make a large offer, but also would reject any large offers that, that come their way. It's sort of a hypocritical strategy even, um, and, it's, and it's very harmful. What we did is we took 
we took a sort of an evolutionary model of the ultimatum game, and we cranked up the conditions that favor spite. Um, this idea of what we call negative assortment, that is, strategies tend to interact with those that aren't like themselves. Um, and when you crank up the conditions that favor spite, what you find is actually an increase in the proportion of fair offers that evolves. Um, which is a little bit puzzling, but when you think about it in a little bit more detail, it starts making sense. What's going on is that as you increase spite, what happens? Well, as you increase, the, as you crank up the conditions that favor spite, the proportion of fair, of rejection starts increasing dramatically. But it turns out to be easier to spite the unfair players than it is to spite the fair players. Part of the nature of a fair offer is that if you reject it, you have to pay as big a cost to reject it as. Um, you would do as a har to a harm for me. Whereas if I make you an unfair offer, say 90-10, you have to pay a cost of 10 to harm me 90, which is easier to get as far as um, uh, um, the conditions that might favor spite. So fairness comes about because as a sort of defense mechanism against spite. Um, so if you took fairness out, spite would still be there, but because spite is there and fairness is possible, we get fairness as well. And I'm trying to sort of uh, take that and, and transpose it to a situation of, let's say, limited numbers of, of resources. So you've got mm -hmm. you've got maybe rival groups who are going after different amounts of uh, different the same amounts of food, or, or trying to figure out how to divide up a territory that has you know a certain um, amount of berry bushes in it and stuff like that. So, well, give me your sense of how that model plays out there. Yeah, the model is abstract; it doesn't have any any obvious interpretation. But the, on the other hand, it does sort of kind of apply to a lot of different scenarios. One scenario that it does apply to is the sort of whether you an animal arrives at a new area of land and has to decide how much of it to defend from others that might be using the land, right? right? So that's sort of the demand, right? And the other can either challenge or not challenge, right? Or sort of accept the portion of the land that the other organism gives him. Um, but it might come up in other areas. So for instance, the amount of time that parents spend or the amount of resources or time that parents spend investing in their children. Um, both parents want their children to do well, but they're sort of at odds with respect to they'd both prefer the other one to sort of do the lion's share of the work um, in in biological context, feeding, <laughs> defense, things that, like this. That's going to come up as a conversation in some households that listen to this show, I think. Uh, this is a fascinating stuff. We're going to sort of move from here to the area of pure political behavior where there seems to be an awful lot of spite. So um, thank you so much, Rory Smead. Rory Smead uh, is a professor of philosophy of biology at Northeastern University. Let's grab a quick break here. We'll come back. We'll talk about it in the world of politics. <laughs> Just for spite, just for spite, just for spite. The lesson is clear. People who are ruled by spite and envy and vengefulness are jerks and should die and burn like pigs in hell and I should get their cars if they have nice ones. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are spiteful Greg, George, Anthony, Andrew, Shabazz, Lishke, and jealous Jane Ashley. Greg Hill appeared in our intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Fredo Corleone. For show pages, articles, and PDFs of the anonymous hate mail the Faith Middleton Show staff has written to Giada De Laurentiis, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, Thomas Moore and Colin talk about having a religion of one's own. And now... Back to Colin. 
Yeah, I'm a big fan of Thomas More. We've had one full-length, full-show conversation before. He's going to be back in town actually this afternoon. We'll be having another conversation, which you will hear tomorrow as we get ready for our event at Watkinson School. So we're going to move on, and this is an area where I might expect to get a few phone calls also as we go along, because I think it's something a lot of people are observing, uh, this notion that uh, that spite uh, as good a word as any, anyway, that spite has pervaded the American political process, both at the level of the big players, the people actually in Congress, the people um, in the executive branch, and also maybe at the level of the voters. And we're going to talk about both of those uh, with Alan Abramowitz. He is the Alban W. Barkley Professor of Political Science at Emory University. So, um, Alan Abramowitz, first of all, we know that spite is not a new thing in politics and people who watch the movie Lincoln, you know, watching the, the coarseness of the debate and Tommy Lee Jones calling people adult-pated nincompoops. And, and we know that, you know, the people have taken a cane to, to one another on the floor of the, the Senate in previous times. Spite isn't new in politics. So if there's a difference now, what's that difference? Right. Well, you're absolutely right. It's not a new thing in politics. Um, but it's certainly true, I think, that in recent years we're seeing an uptick uh, in the uh, le- level of uh, personal animosity that we're seeing uh, in politics, uh, name-calling, uh, just generally uh, negative uh, feelings about the other side. And, and I think we're seeing this not only uh, among leaders uh, in Congress, for example, but, but even within the public, or at least you know, within that segment of the public, uh, who are uh, engaged in politics, who care about, about politics. Uh, so, uh, yes, I mean, I, I, and, I th- and I think you know, the, what's really underlying this uh, is, first of all, a, a growing divide between the parties, mm-hmm. uh, a, div- a growing divide on issues, uh, but also uh, a growing divide in terms of you know, the kinds of uh, people who support the two parties in terms of their uh, social characteristics. Yeah. Now, let's, I want to talk about this at both of these levels, but we can start at the level of leadership. And, and I, I, I'm not a political scientist, but it strikes me that what's happened is, although there are ideological divides and it's it's maybe possible to measure which ones are, are have been more extreme over history, <laughs> the, the difference kind of goes back to what our first guest said about the nature of spite, which is that, that you can call it spite when it begins to uh, interfere with other desirable outcomes. One thing I discovered just the other day is that um, a member – there. I was was talking about a specific member of Congress who's been in there for, I'd say, about four terms in the House of Representatives. So may- maybe eight years, maybe 10 years, something like that. He's never been on a conference committee, ever, not once. Um, right. Because conference com- com- committees, which are used to resolve disputes between chambers and arrive at an outcome. I mean, the whole idea is we need to get a bill done. We need to make a law. Uh, we have to have conference committees in order to get that done. Um, they don't happen as much anymore. They, they're, they're very rare things. Be- right. And it seems as though the outcome is less important than the animosity that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Um, I also think that it's harder to reconcile differences between bills passed by the House and Senate uh, when you have chambers controlled by different parties. And again, when the, you know, when the differences between the chambers on these issues are often very, very large. Uh, so it's a combination of sort of partisanship, ideological differences, and then just the fact that neither side really trusts the other side uh, and there's a tendency to view those on the other side with suspicion and as being uh, not, not just people we disagree with on issues, but uh, in many cases, these are people who are just bad people who have, who have bad motives. Uh, and therefore, you, 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 you shouldn't negotiate with them. Uh, and if you're seen as cooperating with the other side, actually, that can be held against you. 
Uh, we're talking to Alan Abramowitz. Uh, his books include The Disappearing Center and The Polarized Public, two, uh, two very apt choices for what we're talking about now. Well, I want to come back to leadership, but let's go look down at the grassroots level here. So one thing that gets examined sometimes is, you know, Thomas Frank wrote, you know, what's the matter with Kansas? So and his argument there is, well, why, it seems like voters are not voting in their best interest at times, you know, that in fact they're voting in the interest of people who are not them. You know, why would they do this? One possible explanation is that they're not so much, it's not so much that they're not voting in the, their best interest, but they, they, they are voting out of spite. They're voting against the interests of other people, which whom they can sort of vaguely imagine, whom they don't want to help out. Yeah, I, I think there's some truth to that that um, we tend to see those on the other side, and I'm talking about among the, within the public now, uh, you know, as being, uh, you know, different from us uh, and, and as, as having bad motives, uh, again. Uh, and so, you know, in, in the case of, uh, you know, uh, those on the left, I, I think to often view um, voters on the right as conservatives as either, you know, uh, being um, just you know rich people who wa- who want to just uh, game the system to advance their economic interests, or as you know uh, super religious people who want to impose their will you know on on everyone else, and and on the right there's a tendency to view those you know voters on the left as, as being um, you know just out to get things for free uh, and being lazy and and um, you know. Uh, not wanting to work and wanting to just, uh, uh, you know, li- live off uh, of welfare. Yeah. I mean, one of the big questions uh, is if if it's true, which I would say it is, that that and the average person is more likely to lose his or her health insurance than to suddenly acquire two or three million more dollars than than that person has. Right. Why? Why does that person vote against expansions and access to health insurance and in favor uh, of tax structures that favor people who are much wealthier than said, you know, example person is. Yeah. Um, and, and I do think sometimes they are voting against, they're not voting for something. They're voting a bunch against a whole bunch of people that they don't want to have take advantage of, of some new benefit that's provided. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, that that's true to some extent. Uh, and, and I also think that uh, certainly one of the uh, uh, factors underlying that is race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, I, I think what you're seeing is that there's a lot of suspicion uh, among among conservatives uh, um, uh, that, you know, the, the, the people who are benefiting from these government programs, including the Affordable Care Act, you know, are not only, you know, they're lazy and, and uh, they're not willing to work hard uh, and, you know, they follow this sort of, you know, supposedly traditional uh, American path to get ahead, um, but they're also sort of different people, um, and they're not like us. And and race certainly has a lot to do with that. And uh, I think that that plays into uh, views of not only of some of these issues, but views of President Obama and, and views of, um, you know, the, the um, types of people who voted for the president. Yeah, I, I think race, but also class and education entered into this. I'll give you an example, too. Uh, in 1993, uh, President Clinton was starting his first term, and his first nominee for attorney general was a woman named Zoe Beard. And right. it was eventually found that she, you know, had, she had a very uh, high, pretty high, pay, very high-paying job, really, with an insurance company here in Connecticut, and she'd maybe employed illegal immigrants as nannies or wh- whatever. And I was actually a talk show host on a commercial station at the time, and I, I got calls on this every day, all day long, all day yeah. long. And after a while, I, was, I started 
started to realize that it wasn't so much about the facts of the case, because the facts of the case, although they were somewhat damning, weren't as damning as all kinds of other things were, that were going on at the same moment. It was basically this really kind of die yuppie scum, you know, that, that was sort of what underlay the dialogue. It was kind of like, I don't like you. You've got all these advantages. You know, you're yeah. the kind of person who's been bossing me around my entire life telling me I can't smoke. Uh, I hate you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's definitely something to that. Um, and, and, of course, the, the ironic thing is, I mean, that, that sort of behavior uh, it goes on, you know, on both sides of the, of the partisan aisle. I mean, that's not, that's not really something that differentiates uh, yes. Democrats from Republicans. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I would agree with that. And, and to a certain degree, the consultants um, have tried to figure this out, too, whether it's George Lakoff on the left or, or Frank Luntz on the right, uh, Drew Weston looking at sort of how the political brain works. One of, the thing, one of the things is to try to understand this really fundamental limbic response that people have to certain words, to certain emotional tripwire right. issues, right? Yeah, and I, I think there's a tendency uh, also to uh, see um, the president and, uh, and and liberals as being somehow un-American, uh, and uh, part of that I, I think is uh, uh, it gets based on race, but I mean part of it also reflects this sort of cultural divide that you have in American politics now, um, where um, the, the country is really divided uh, in terms of uh, you know people's uh, religious beliefs uh, and uh, uh, that's that's something that's relatively new I mean we didn't we didn't you know, see that if you go back you know 30 or 40 years uh, we weren't really divided there was a division between a traditional divide between Protestants and Catholics um, but it didn't have to do with your religious beliefs or how religious you were but now um, there really is this divide and we see it on on issues like uh, like gay rights on abortion uh, and so on so uh, and 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 those are very emotional issues and um, uh, ones that it's you know it's hard it's hard to compromise uh, on those issues at least for for the people uh, who really care about those issues. It does seem as though once again at the level of kind of our normative understanding that Americans will to a certain degree tolerate behavior at least on their own side whatever their own side of the political divide is of spiteful behavior that's directed at or guided by some kind of ideology or at least appears to be. You know the the thing that they won't tolerate or I think they're less likely to tolerate is spite for spite's sake. So we're watching that unfold right now with so-called Bridgegate. I mean if in fact it's the case that Chris Christie yeah. Closed a bridge out of sheer spite, or that somebody working for Chris Christie yeah. uh, closed access lanes to a bridge out of pure spite, and Republicans and Democrats were stuck in the same traffic jam anyway. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that that's going to be processed in a different way. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting on that though. Uh, if you look at what's happened to public opinion, uh, you know, since the, uh, those revelations, uh, actually Christie's uh, popularity among Republicans hasn't been damaged. In fact. Um, he's getting perhaps more support from Republicans for, uh, than he was before. Um, you know, he, he was viewed with some suspicion, I think, by conservative Republicans before as being someone, you know, who was uh, uh, too perhaps too moderate, too willing to compromise to work with Democrats. Uh, but you know, now that he's being attacked by Democrats, uh, you know, we're, you're seeing some evidence of a conservatives rallying behind him. So I'm not quite sure if that's true. I mean, I, I think that that kind of spiteful behavior uh, may not be hurting him very much. Uh, on his own side of the aisle. His problem is that he's the governor of a very democratic state, you know, so, um, you know, you can't, you can't survive uh, that kind of thing uh, and, and continue to be, uh, you know, have a high approval rating in a state like New Jersey. 
Um, last question, cause, just because we're running out of time, not because this isn't fascinating, because it absolutely, absolutely is fascinating. But you sort of wonder also about the change in the media climate, right? You have more ideological mm-hmm. and partisan-directed media. So whether it's Ed Schultz on the left or, you know, Glenn Beck on the right, it's sort of okay to be in attack mode now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and so, um, uh, again, I think that the message that uh, uh, you get from a lot of these the partisan media, whether it's um, some of the, uh, the cable TV uh, channels or uh, talk radio or blogs, is that, again, it's that the, uh, not just the leaders but the, the supporters, uh, the voters on the other side, uh, are, are bad people and have bad motives. And, and um, so, therefore, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's okay if uh, bad things happen to them. Um, because you know they're trying to take advantage of you, and, they're, and, and they would they would hurt you if they had the opportunity. So it's okay to hurt them. Your books include the disappearing center and the polarized public. Is there uh, an end in sight to all this? I don't think there's an end in sight anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I actually think it's going to get worse. Um, is a, you know I think in the aftermath of the upcoming elections, you're going to see, for example, a more polarized Senate than we have now, regardless of which party is in control. So, uh, you know, I'm afraid not, at least not not for the next uh, couple of election cycles. Well, thank you. So, I mean, that was a, a non-uplifting note to end on, but it's going <laughs> to have to. That's all right. It's going to have to do. Uh, Alan Abramowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I want to thank Betsy Kaplan and Kyan Wolf for producing today's show. And remind you, feel free to join us tomorrow night at Watkinson School. It would be good if you got in touch with Watkinson School beforehand, either on their phone line or at Watkinson.org for our 7 p.m. summit on the future of sports, on how we lost some of the innocence of sports, whether we can get it back. We'll all be enjoying a women's basketball game tonight. Many of us will be anyway. But uh, on Wednesday morning, we may have a whole bunch of other questions to ask. So anyway, Thomas Moore will be on the show tomorrow. And then tomorrow night, we're at Watkinson School. We'd love to have you join us. Thanks to everybody who listened today. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. I'm Kion Wolf, and I don't try to improve my work here because I have naysayers. I do it in spite of them. Uh, Kion, you don't really have any naysayers. Oh, I better find some or else I'm going to get really bad at this job.